Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 5 this evening. This is for your use. This is sort of a reminder. This is what uh, the writer is going to be touching on here. Did you get one? And um, you can see we have the, if you're looking at it, um, this is the holy place and the holy of holies. And the furniture and contents therein, and which the writer's going to be uh, rehearsing with his Jewish audience in his letter here uh, to them. So that's something you can take home. Then indeed, verse 1, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So, uh, I'll try to go through this and find the picture in Christ. And the whole thought in this particular chapter is the power of the blood, and the power of the blood gives us access to God. So we may be talking about the furniture, we may be talking about the holy place and the holy of holies and the sacrifices and all those things as we've made it through this epistle. But the center of it all is the blood of, of the sacrifice. And it's all pictures and symbolic of what Jesus Christ did, as we'll see through this section here tonight. God's word is always true. He can never lie. He said to our first parents, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And the Lord's plan it took about 4,000 years for him to manifest the Messiah, somewhere in that neighborhood. To imagine 4,000 years to repair the damage that our first parents caused. There was about a 1,500-year period in which the law gave, was given to teach each of us, especially the Jews, on the importance of the blood. This was God's method, God's way of illustrating what would be fulfilled in himself when he would come and die. That's why we see the exactness throughout the law. And the strictness by which the priests were to operate and conduct their services unto the Lord. If you didn't do it correctly, death could be the result. We see that with Nadab and Abihu. They offered strange fire and immediately they died. So there is a strict order here. The holiness of God cannot be violated without consequences. And so, having a good, healthy understanding, I know we're not Jewish, we'll, probably, we'll always be Gentiles, right? 
<laughs> it's hard for us to have that kind of mindset uh, when it comes to the law and the sacrifice and having, if you were a true Jew and having been brought up in that, you would have a, a, a greater appreciation for that if you were completed, a completed Jew in accepting Jesus. It would really, the depth of that knowledge and understanding would really drive this home. And this is really sort of what's behind the writer. He, he knows that the people understand their roots in Judaism. He, they, that's their life. That's their ancestry. And, and to, to think about going back into that system when you've got the real thing here, those are shadows. You know, it's like, you know, could you imagine having not seen your loved one for many, many months? And then they are spotted down the street and you see them and they see you and they're running and the sun the sun is shining behind them and, and you're running with all your, you can't get there quick enough, right? And then right before you get there, you fall down and grab the shadow. That'd be the dumbest thing. You would never do that. But that's what the law is. It's just the shadow. It's not the real person. And this is what these people are doing. They're, they're going back to the shadow. There's nothing there. And so this is really kind of sad. And so, as we know, the earthly covenant had a sanctuary. Um, and remember, there was only two sanctuaries, earthly sanctuaries, that were ordained by God to be built. One, Solomon, and then the other under Ezra. So what Herod's temple, what was man's doing? That was, all, that was a big power play. That's all that. That was a political power play. But God used it. God allowed it. But as far as being ordained by Yahweh, no, only those two. And so the writer again is pointing out, look, Christianity's system is far superior. It's better than Judaism because there is no earthly tabernacle. The apostles were never told, hey, you need, wherever you go, you need to put up a, a tabernacle. Build, build a sanctuary for me. You don't see that. In reality, where the true tabernacle is where? It's in heaven. But what's the tabernacle on earth now? You. 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 If you have Jesus in your heart, you are the temple of God. He's dwelling in you. And that, that is just, don't tell that to us, somebody that doesn't go to, doesn't understand the Lord. Oh, God lives in you. Okay, right, okay, right. <laughs> they don't get it. We barely get it, right? <laughs> Why would God indwell me? But as we make it through this scripture, we're going to understand why he can do it and why he wants to do it. One of the things that was really precious about Solomon's temple and also the temple that Ezra built is what happened when it was finished and it was dedicated Anybody want us to take a shot at what happened? What, what descended upon it? The Shekinah. Yeah, the glory of God. And it was so intense, what happened? Anybody? The Prius couldn't get in. You know you, want, you know, you talk about being under the spot where the glory comes out, right? <laughs> you had to get out of there. You know, we can be so filled sometimes with the Spirit of God. And he, that's what he wants. He, he wants the Shekinah. You know, if you have a hungry child and he asks for something to eat, what do you give him? 
something to eat. How much more? Our Heavenly Father, if you ask him for his spirit, will he not give you his spirit? Jesus had the spirit without measure. How about you, you want to pray that one? Not give me the spirit without measure, right, Lord? Now, remember back in chapter 8, verse 5. Let's take a look at that real quick. Those who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed that when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, this is Yahweh, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So this is something that was very important to God. It's not your right. It is not your prerogative to change this. Don't, don't you be adding anything to what I've shown you. You see, God is the one who designed the tabernacle. It was God's idea. This whole system of Levitical order was all ordained and set up by God. He, Moses didn't have to figure anything out. Just, here it is. I mean, you spend 40 days in the presence of God and he's talking to you face to face. You could probably get it right. <laughs> I would assume, right? And I think he got it right. He wasn't about to add to it. Why? Because this is an exact picture and pattern of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and if we try to add well, I think God's this way, or I think we can approach God this way. It's all about access to God. Well, my God, yeah, that's the problem. That's why you don't know God, because it's, it's your God. It's your idol. It's self-worship. It's an expression of self-worship. God did not leave it up to the people of God to figure him out or how he should be worshipped. He explained. He is the creator. He sets the rules. We access God on his terms, not on our terms. This is, a, this is a, sort of that comes across as the law. And we'll see that what was in the ark. Anybody want to take a shot? Remember what was in the ark? A yeah. And yeah, and the, the testimony, the two tablets, the law. We're going to get to this, but while we're at it, what was on top of the box? A little square box, really nothing fancy. And that wasn't the issue. It's what was contained in the box. but Those things that you just mentioned, but on top of it was the mercy seat. Very too important. What we've learned so far about this as we've made our way through uh, Hebrews here is first of all, the Old Testament order initially set up, the Levitic order was not sufficient. It wasn't wrong because God ordained it. And God, God set it up. It just wasn't complete. It was not sufficient in and of itself, because it couldn't deal with the weakness of human nature, our fallen nature. It could not give us the power to overcome our sin. It, it couldn't actually relieve the guilt of sin. Only the precious blood of Christ can remove the guilt of sin from a person's heart and life. This is why I sort of struggle with modern, some of modern medicine and psychology. They make this little subtle move from the met mental mind to the medical. Oh, you're suffering depression. Well, let's just give it this drug. You're suffering from this. Well, let's try that. And they begin to, you know, you wonder why people are chemically imbalanced. 
He's putting other chemicals in there that shouldn't be there. You think? Maybe? No, I'm not slamming all this. You know, I'm not a doctor. But I do think that a lot of, initially anyway, is that our bodies are so full of stuff that depression is an easy thing to come by. It's usually a lack of expression of your creative because God's made it. In making us in his image, we're creative people. And if we're not creating, we're not making, we're not doing, we're not fulfilling our purpose. And to the degree that I don't do those things, it's to to the degree that I'm going to suffer mental my thoughts are not going to be healthy. They're not going to be good. They're not going to be creative. Something along those lines. So in this first sanctuary that we've read about, as you also in your hand out there, this building was not that big. Kind of like this one. Not that big. <laughs> but we get by. We meet with God. That's the important thing. It's only 45 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 15 feet tall. It had two compartments, the holy place. That's where the priests ministered daily. Uh, so think about how they would come into this tabernacle setting. You'd come into the first room and you would see this building uh, here. And on the right hand would be the table and the showbread. You can look at your little hand out there. There were 12 loaves of bread on that table, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. There was the lampstand, but the menorah. Uh, what does that stand for, by the way? Someone, someone can remember that one when we went through that quite a while back. That's what that's that's the, in that. Actually, that's probably the menorah. The, yeah, the right. The, well, yeah, the lampstand is the, the menorah, the light, of, but but it was representing Jesus. He's the light of the world, you know. And he said, "I am the light of the world." So the Jewish mind would have been thinking tabernacle. Now think about if that wouldn't have been in that room, probably been pretty dark, right? Without Jesus in our life, it's dark. You're in darkness. Um, of course, the table that held that the showbread. What is that? What do we what do we think of bread? What do we think about when what Jesus said about himself? I am the bread of life. And then there was a veil between them, and uh, the altar of incense was there, which is uh, represents the prayers of the saints. So as you are reading through, remember going reading through the book of Revelation, you'll see the 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 altar of incense there and that prayers are being offered up to God. This is a picture of the heavenly and what goes on there. Think of our brothers and sisters that are now in glory. They see all this. Isn't that amazing? They're able to just, wow, I remember reading that. Look at that. We can imagine how that's going to be. So on the left side, you came in in the veil uh, in the first tent, um, would have been this lamp and, and with the seven uh, branches and all, and it was lit. There was these little cups of oil, and uh, they had little wicks in the oil so that the light could burn. Uh, and again, uh, representative of what went on. Uh, so, 
Uh, every week they would change the loaves of bread out. Remember David uh, was able to, you know, get the stale bread. <laughs> and even though it was holy bread, you know, he was allowed to, when he was on the run from Saul, he was allowed to partake of that. Um, the daily duty of the priest would be to change out this oil. What does that say about our prayers? They should be daily, you know, type of thing. Um, those those wicks were lit, so prayer has a way of setting your heart and my heart on fire uh, for the Lord. Their zeal, important things to remember. But these, this whole thing is that when you are praying, think about this. It's it takes on the form of a like incense, like smoke. That incense that was burning, it would is rising up, and God, it's like He's it's a sweet smelling savor to Him. He is honored, He is glorified, He is praised through our prayers. And that now that's something that's really hard for uh, the Gentile mind, the our our you know technical mind, our modern culture. We don't like you know we don't appreciate that as much as maybe the Jewish mindset and the Old Testament mindset. But nonetheless, we should learn to see what God values. And so they were busy all day long offering these offerings, and then, of course, their regular times of prayer. So... We've looked at worship from a horizontal level of a person coming into the tabernacle, but that's I want to we want to flip that around. Let's see how God views worship since He's the one who initiated it. So let's start from what's important there: the Ark of the Covenant, and and and. This is this is the access. This is where God says, I will meet you between the cherub. I will meet you there. You want access to God? You've got to come right here. You're going to have to be sanctified, washed, and cleansed before you can even come near me. Speaking of God's holiness, we just don't come running into the presence of God. Now, he, it's a little different for us because we're under the blood. But there should always be that acknowledgement you know I have no problem coming into the tabernacle you know the priests would bathe they prepare themselves the people brought their offerings and then once sin was dealt with and recognized the holiness of God then they could meet with God but let's see how God sees it from his point of view how he sees worship so if the ark represents the presence of God, it wasn't God, but it was an object that represented him. No, no other religion did this. Instead of um, Pompeo, I believe he was, when he destroyed the temple, was he part of the, uh, the crew that destroyed that? I'm trying to remember history there. Anyway, he went into the holy place. Pompeo made an entrance into the holy place at one time, and he was um, disappointed. Like, there's nothing in here. There's no idols. Seeing all the all the gods of the world, everything that he'd ever been exposed to, had an idol. Well, God isn't 
represented by anything. No graven image is going to represent him. So uh, his words were like, they don't even have a God. <laughs> anyway, um, but the whole idea of looking at the ark, we see the character of God. And this is what's most important. If we're going to have access to God, we must first recognize his character, his person, who he is. And this is why, you know, as a people outside faith don't understand God. They're, they don't know how to approach God. They want, again, they want God on their terms. But God is not found on our terms. He's found on his terms. We read that, you know, Isaiah or uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, right? When we begin to seek God with all our heart in brokenness and come and, and search for him, he will reveal himself to us. And he'll reveal what we're talking about here. But uh, his character is represented in the art. So uh, we see the law that's in there. And so the law represents holiness, the demanding exactness of what he commands, the illustration of what true love looks like, how you, you know, if you love God, then you're not going to have any idols before him, no graven images for him. If you love your neighbor as yourself, right, you're not going to steal from him, you're not going to take his wife, you're not going to, you know, all those, steal his property, all those kinds of things. So the law explains love, it explains holiness, uh, which is um, God's character. God can never be anything but holy. He can never be anything but loving. He can be, he never changes. The other part that we see is the, the lid, the mercy seat. So in accessing God, we must see two things in his character, holiness and mercy. He's both of those, and he will never change. We come on the basis of him hoping and praying for mercy and recognizing his holiness. The word uh, mercy seat is propitiatory, and which you know we take as atone, atonement. So in mercy, it, the, the payment, the debt that's been incurred by sin is paid for. And again, that's access to God through the blood. The Old Testament sacrifices were merely a covering for uh, the sin. God sort of saw it all together in the person of Christ, but at that point it was a covering. Now the real has come, the complete has come, and sins are not just covered anymore. They're completely removed. This is why the Christian should never walk in condemnation. There is no reason for a person that truly loves the Lord to live in any kind of condemnation. That is one of the saddest states to be in. Paul, the writer John says there's, or Paul in Romans says there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then as a result of being in Christ Jesus, this is chapter 6, we're commanded not to live after the flesh, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's an important thing. If you're walking in the Spirit, you're not going to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And that's when you fulfill the lusts of the flesh, that's when guilt sets in. And if guilt is not, uh, and sin is not confessed, 
it, and we harbor things, it hardens our heart, and that hardness of heart uh, brings condemnation to us. And the, uh, the enemy uses that to draw us away. Remember, if you're under conviction, you're going to be drawn to the cross. You're going to be drawn to the Lord in such a way that I want your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me, Lord. Conviction always done that. What does condemnation do? Other, it's the opposite. It drives you like Cain was driven from the presence of God because he failed to deal with his sin. The guilt was too overwhelming. And now I'm driven from the presence of the Lord. Well, you're the one driving the car, dude. It's on you. Sin lies at the door. It's up to you, he, Jesus, God told him. It's up to you to deal with it. It desires you. It wants to control you. Dominate you. You have to deal with it. I've made provision through sacrifice. If you'll just apply the provision, the guilt, the condemnation will be will leave. I think Paul had it right um, in Romans when he was talking about this propitiation. Romans 3.25 Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Jesus in reality is the mercy seat. He's the mercy seat. So when God views you coming, you know, again, looking at the ark, worship, he's looking through the finished work of Christ to all those who come in Jesus' name. We have an advocate with the Father, right? So when the accuser of the brethren, I don't know how that works in heaven, but we, have, he's a, we know that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, right? Well, I, that, look what that person did. He's mine. And Jesus says, no, that one's under the blood. Father, I died for that one. Check. <laughs> Isn't that great? Every sin... Everything you've ever done is under the precious blood of Christ. There's not a thing the enemy can do about it. Christ was our mercy seat. He was our propitiation. Can you, can you say a good amen that you've been declared righteous? Amen. That is an incredible gift. Earlier in the in the in the book of Hebrews here, chapter 2, I think, where, where he exhorts them to not neglect their salvation. Yeah. How does a person neglect their salvation? Probably by not dealing with sin in their life. By not, you know, he talks about this later uh, in chapter 10, forsaking the assembly. I don't get it. I, well, you're a preacher. You aren't going to get it because you have to be there at every service, you know. I, I just—it's the Western Church in general. I, I just don't understand. Um, I need to be in God's presence. I need a, a regular dose. <laughs> don't you? Don't you enjoy singing together, praying together, and just exchanging? Friendship, and you know we we're cl we're 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 closer than blood relatives, right? Do you ever notice when you go to to another church or 
uh, in some of your cases, you people like me, we moved into this area. They didn't really know too many people probably, right? But then you meet some other Christians and then you begin to get to know them. It's like it's a bond already established that wasn't there. And it's kind of like, well, you could just go with the relationship. You really can't do that. That's not that's unheard of otherwise, I think. But there's a bond that we have with the family of God, and that bond is Christ. And this is an important thing. Uh, but again, this uh, just reiterating how God sees worship. This is how we should see worship. It is recognizing His character. So as we come into to to our gatherings, that's why I talk about being prepared when you come to church. Deal with any issues that you might have here vertically or this on the horizontal that's part of being prepared so that there isn't the biting of the conscience because then then you're halfway through the worship service and you're still dealing with stuff and you just missed out because you're dealing with stuff that should have been dealt with before you got there right and you can do that if you just discipline yourself and let's just be real we all have moments Sometimes we get up on the wrong side of the bed and we're just a grouch, <laughs> right? Or we, we, we're just whatever, and we're just not in the spirit like we should be. But God understands all that. I understand that. There's no condemnation. But we have to acknowledge it. Lord, I, I, I'm going to church because I need your presence, and I, I need forgiveness. Wash me. Make me sensitive to your spirit. Make me ready to receive and to give to you what is worthy of your name. You're holy, you're righteous, you're true, but you're also merciful. God's merciful. God's gracious.